Please open your Bibles tonight to Mark 7, the passage that we're looking at tonight is critical to understanding so much of life. Perhaps you have had the sad and heartbreaking experience of hearing someone that you loved and trusted has fallen into sin. And you asked, how could that happen? Or you were placed in a position where you were called to extend forgiveness and it was difficult and you struggled. How did you deal with that? What is at the core of our understanding that helps us understand these things when they come inevitably in life? Well, it's the state of our heart. What's your heart like? And when you begin to grasp what Jesus is saying in this passage about what your heart is like, then you're not surprised about people who fall because you realize you could do the same just as easily. It's not easy, but perhaps a little easier to extend forgiveness when you recognize how much the Lord has forgiven you. And so as we open our Bibles tonight and look at this sobering passage, it reminds us of our desperate state before a holy God. And in so doing, it reminds us of the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. That despite all that we're going to see about our hearts tonight, Christ came He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. And He died to cleanse you of this kind of heart, to change your heart, to clean you, and to give you His righteousness that you might dwell forever with Him. And so within the sobriety and the ugliness of the reality that we look at tonight, The end result that, by God's grace, we'll get to is a glorious rejoicing in the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So let's read verses 14 through 23 in Mark chapter 7, remembering that Jesus has just dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes and obliterated their system of false worship which elevated man's traditions to the same authority and therefore displaced the Scripture. And so now in verse 14, Jesus calls all the people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Well, as we get into the passage tonight, let me just point out the structure in the first 
two verses, verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives a, a parable to all the people gathered there and says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And you'll notice there's no verse 16. And with the best manuscript evidence, that's probably accurate to not have a, a 16 there. I'm just not going to make a big deal out of it. Just point out that there is no 16 and there's a reason for that. And then verse 17 there's a distinction between the crowds and Jesus and his disciples as they go into a house, and his disciples ask for a clarification. So Jesus gives a simple parable, and the disciples request a fuller explanation. And in verses 18 and 19, Jesus expands the denial of defilement from outside. There's nothing outside of you that can come in and defile you. And verses 20 through 23 then expand the source of defilement as the heart. What defiles is within. It's not, it's not imported into us. It's exported from us. And that is the picture that he sets before us in this explanation as he clarifies why the tradition of man, the false worship, the fake worship, is totally unacceptable to God. It's externalism, but the problem isn't external. The problem's inside of us. Now, when we come to this passage, and you know, our, it just kind of turns our stomachs. Because the reality is, no one wants to know their heart condition. Really, you don't want to know your heart condition. It's a standing joke in our family that whenever you hear anything that says, follow your heart, you, you just snort at that and say, that's the most ridiculous thing that anybody could ever want to do. But it's the worldly wrong perspective that there's something good in you, and it's a lie because there's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. And the reality is that there's only one being who knows our heart fully, the Lord. But to treat the heart, to deal with our heart in a, in a right manner, and to ultimately be able to offer worship that's acceptable to God, we have to have the correct diagnosis. And so what we have before us is a diagnosis from heaven. It's a divine diagnosis. And it's a diagnosis that corresponds to the rest of Scripture. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds." That's a terrifying verse. Here's the state of your heart. Who can know it? Answer, the Lord. And that is the basis on which He deals with us. A full understanding of, the, of every part of our heart. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 9, For the Lord searches all hearts, all hearts, and understands every plan and thought. Jesus, when He says the things that come out of a person are what defile Him in verse 15, and when He says in verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, etc. In verse 23, when He says all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person, Jesus is once again demonstrating His deity by diagnosing the condition of the human heart, the universal condition of the human heart. He knows what is within a person. In John chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, John tells us explicitly that Jesus didn't hand Himself over to men because He knew what was in a man. 
And so as Mark continues to present Christ as the Son of God, the King of kings, the ruler that everyone will have to give an account to, the greatest ruler, he is showing us that Christ, as the greatest ruler, knows the state of the heart of every person. He knows the condition of the heart of every person. And he diagnoses that. This is a diagnosis that is repeated throughout the epistles. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul writes, "...the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Those in the flesh cannot please God." In Colossians 1.21, describing our state outside of Christ, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And then James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Scripture does not give us a flattering picture of the human heart. It does not give us a flattering picture of our heart. In our confession, the confession that we use here at Truth Community Church, the 1689 Baptist Confession in chapter 6 and paragraph 4, we have this statement. From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. In other words, we sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. That, that is That is what we are outside of Christ. That is what we are the moment we come into existence because of the imputed guilt of Adam. So, if Christ has set aside the external elements of fake worship, the extension of tradition that sets aside the commandment of God... How do we deal with hearts like this? How do you deal with your filthy heart? And that's what we'll seek to answer tonight with three statements. And I'll go ahead and give those to you in case I forget to emphasize them later on in the message. But the first thing we're going to see tonight is that to deal with your filthy heart, you need to receive Jesus' words about your heart. And then secondly, you need to reject false attempts for cleansing. And finally, repent of your sinfulness. Receive Jesus' words about your heart. Reject false attempts for cleansing. And repent of your sinfulness. This is the antithesis. This is the exact opposite of the fake worship that Jesus deconstructed and and, uh, denied in the previous passage. So let's first consider that to deal with your filthy heart, you need to receive Jesus' words about your heart. This is, again, a divine diagnosis. Look at how Jesus begins this passage in verse 14. He calls all the people to him. And he says, hear me, all of you, everyone, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. How do we receive Jesus' words about your heart? Well, Jesus actually gives us a command here. He says two commands. He says, hear and understand. Hear and understand. So it's a very simple starting place. You receive Jesus' words about your heart by obeying Jesus' commands. Hear what he says about your heart. This is where he starts. You need to listen to Jesus. It's a matter of obedience to give attention to what Christ says about your heart. 
Rejecting Christ's words about your heart is to disobey Christ. And, and this is, the, this is the, sobering, the sobering reality that, you know, here we are sitting here this evening and we have God's word. We have God's word in our own language. It's readable. It's clear. We're, we're confronted with these words. We can meditate on these words. And, and you're accountable to Christ for what you do with these words. When I worked at a university, every year we would have the students read the handbook and they'd have to sign that they read the handbook and agreed to abide with it and, you know, all of that. And I worked in student life where we handled accountability. And on countless occasions, students would come, not voluntarily because they were called, and be confronted about something in the handbook that they had violated. And you would routinely hear, oh, well, I, I didn't read that, or I forgot that. Well, you signed that you read it and that you agreed to abide by it. You're accountable for it. You're accountable for it. And in the same way, we are accountable for Christ's words. This is in a culture, in a culture where our default now is to take, you know, the new update to our phone or uh, the agreement to a piece of software and to scroll quickly through it and hit agree and move on without knowing anything that we just agreed to. This requires us to, to rewire our thinking about the importance of what is being said. Stop, listen, hear, understand. Right? The, the idea here is, you know, stay in this passage and, until, until you've assimilated it into your mind and heart. These are the words of Christ. Christ is telling you what your heart is like, and he's telling you to listen to what he says your heart is like. Hear and understand, all of you. And we need to respond to that. Now, it's very instructive that the next two passages in chapter 7 really illustrate what has to happen for Christ to deal with our heart. In the next passage, we have the account of Jesus delivering the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman from demons. And then right after that, we have the account of Jesus healing a deaf man. And the order of those accounts is not accidental. The natural person does not want to hear. The natural person does not want to understand. And so even as we approach this passage, and even with the simple starting place of receive Jesus' words about your heart by simply obeying his command to hear and understand, it requires a work of the Lord, a work of grace to open our ears so that we do really hear the, the, the words of Christ with the spiritual significance that he intends for them to have on our lives. We, we need his work like he did with that deaf man several verses later when he said, be opened and hear. So we receive Jesus' words about our heart. We obey Jesus' commands. And, and, and along with that means that we need to open our ears and shut our mouth. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Again, we live in a time where it is acceptable and expected that we'll read something online and we'll immediately respond and immediately respond. We won't think we write. We won't think we talk. We don't think we react. And it's the exact opposite of what God's word says. No, you need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Open your ears and shut your mouth, whether it's 
your physical mouth or your keyboard mouth. Listen. Understand. And and this is why we need to do that. When God gives us His law, the law of God is intended to bring conviction to our souls. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, after Paul goes through the reasons that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all mankind, he summarizes in this way and says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God gives His law, the law of the Scripture, not the law that's supplanted by the tradition of man, to stop our mouths. Now, why do do we need our mouths stopped? To understand the condition of our heart. Well, run your mind back to Genesis chapter 3. The first sin. Adam and Eve fall. God confronts them. And what do they do? They open their mouths and make excuses. And God has given us the law. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us the diagnosis from the words of Christ, the record of Christ's words to stop our mouths, to stop our rationalization so that we can understand who we are before a a holy God. So what we find is that to deal with our filthy heart, a full understanding of, of our heart It requires revelation. We're not going to figure this out on our own. We need to receive the words of Christ. We need to to receive what God says about our heart. On our own, we are full of darkness. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 17. Paul, after reminding us of the glories of the gospel in chapter 4, he transitions to our life in Christ, and he begins in the first 16 verses by expounding the unity that we're to have, the unity that comes from the Spirit. And in verse 17, he transitions, and he's, and he's telling Christians, Christians, As those in Christ, as followers of Christ, you need to walk differently from the world. So first, you need to be unified. You need to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But then verse 17, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is our natural state, the futility of their minds, and he's going to expand on that. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the condition of the human heart. It's ignorant, it's calloused, it's dark. And we have to have revelation, divine revelation that exposes our heart to us and we listen to the words of Christ. And there's a negative side to this. If we're listening to Christ, if we're obeying His words, if we're giving attention, hear me, understand And the flip side of that is we have to reject or oppose what anyone else says about our heart. I can't take what Christ says and what the world says. 
I can't take what Christ says and what I want to think about my heart. No, I have to take only what Christ says, and I have to oppose what anyone else would say about my heart. I can't remain neutral about what the world claims is the problem with people in people's hearts. I have to reject that. I have to actively oppose such lies. I'm, I'm not just a product of my environment. I'm a product of my heart. That's what Jesus says. And so I reject those things. And Jesus is doing that in this passage by rejecting the tenets of fake worship when he says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And then again, as he explains to his disciples in verse 18, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Jesus is rejecting the false ideas of the day that that defilement is imported from failing to keep the the ceremonial traditions of the day. That's, That's what they say about the heart. And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. You reject that. It's not true. And we also have to be careful to remove excuses from our own thinking that would displace our responsibility before a holy God. We are, we are, You know, you can be the most pessimistic person in the world, but a wonderful optimist about your own heart. That's our default. That's what happens since the garden. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We make excuses. We are not basically good people. We are entirely corrupt people. We must receive Jesus' words about our heart. But then secondly, we need to reject false attempts for cleansing. You have to reject false attempts for cleansing. By rejecting false attempts for cleansing, we accept Jesus' diagnosis of our heart. Jesus says external ritual cannot cleanse internal evil. Or to put it another way, external filth does not contribute to internal defilement. Look at what he says in verse 18 and 19 again. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, not the spiritual part of a man? of a person, but his stomach and is expelled. Right? Jesus says, look, if you eat food, there's a physical process that it goes through, and it does nothing for your heart. Right? Ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed food with ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed hands does not cleanse your heart. God gave some ceremonial laws to point people to the need for cleansing that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, but the writer of Hebrews is very clear that those offerings did not spiritually cleanse, and the ultimate, the only spiritually, spiritual cleansing came from, comes from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is laying that foundation here as he, as he distinguishes the physical process from the spiritual realm, your, your problem is a filthy heart that separates you from God, not dirty food, and not even shrimp or pork for a Jew. And so we have to be careful to reject false attempts for, for cleansing. If we understand what Jesus is saying about our heart, and we're going to get to that more in detail here, but when we understand where the defilement comes from, when we understand where the offensiveness comes from in us, the offensiveness against God, it's not because we've eaten certain things or because we didn't wash a certain vessel or didn't wash our hands, it's because of the evil within us. We have to be careful to not get into the legalistic mindset 
of setting up incorrect parameters for cleansing, incorrect restrictions that we equate with spiritual cleansing. So, for example, spiritual cleansing doesn't go come through dietary restrictions. Spiritual cleansing doesn't come through relational restrictions. Spiritual cleansing doesn't come by observing specific days and making them holy. Spiritual cleansing doesn't come from clothing requirements, and spiritual cleansing doesn't come from entertainment restrictions, and we could go on and on and on. Now, now, sometimes we need to have dietary restrictions for health? Sure, absolutely. Do we need to be careful about what we put into our minds? A hundred percent. Right? Do we need to be modest and, and represent Christ and, and the way that we present ourselves? Absolutely. Is it good to have, have days where we focus on the Lord? Uh, absolutely. But folks, none of those things, none of those things serve in any way, shape, or form to cleanse your filthy heart. There's nothing that you can do. You, 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 can't, you can put no level of restriction on your external life and, and, and come and be cleansed before God. Jesus says the problem is the heart. It's not what's going on outside. It's what's happening inside. My family used to, growing up, we would go to up to one of the Amish areas here in the country, and, you know, it's calm and very much slow pace compared to the rest, rest of the world. You know, everybody wears similar clothes, and they don't use electricity, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of restrictions but there's no salvation in those. And in fact, when you look into that very restrictive religion, just as, just as an example, of one example of what we're talking about here, an extreme example of what we're talking about here, it's fraught with theological error and even much opportunity for immorality. Folks, the external does nothing to cleanse the heart. And so we have have to reject those false attempts for cleansing. Now, rejecting false attempts for cleansing does not in any way, shape, or form set aside the law of God. Right? The law of God is good. Paul makes that assertion over and over in his writings. The law of God in Galatians 3 is is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And even as we're in Christ, those who love Christ keep His commands out of love for Christ and love for those around them. Right, so this is not, we're not talking about antinomianism. We're not talking about setting aside the law of God as revealed in His Word. And, you know, if, if you go back and, and listen to Pastor Don's series on the Ten Commandments, he deals with this extensively the importance of the law of God. Right, so, so by clarifying that external rituals, that external restrictions do not in any way contribute to, to spiritual cleansing, it's not a denial of the law. The law is used lawfully to show us our sin, to show us how deeply we violated the law of God. Look, look over to, to Romans chapter 5 just so we can see this. In Romans chapter 5, 
verse 12, Paul tells us how sin and death came into the world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. And let's stop right there. Paul says, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, death spread to all men as a result of Adam's sin. Sin, guilt, was imputed to all of mankind because of the, because of the sin of Adam. Going on, verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Stop again. What is he saying? The filthy heart that Jesus is describing in Mark chapter 7, that was already in the world before the law was given. That was our condition before the law was given. So now, picking up again, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And what Paul is arguing here is that the law came, the law came to define sin, to define the sin that brings death. But death was already there. Sin was already present. The evil heart was already there. And the law came as our schoolmaster to show us the sinfulness of sin. To show us how wicked we were. That when God says, here's, here's the revelation of my character. Here's the revelation of how I've designed life to work in our sinful hearts. We well up and say, no way, I hate that. And later on in Romans, Paul will, Paul will make the point, look, I, I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law said don't covet. But just like a little child, that when you tell them don't do that, and they say that's exactly what I'm going to do. When the law said don't covet, I said that's exactly what I'm going to do. And it was revealed how sinful my heart is. And so Jesus, as he's describing the heart, it's again important. I'm just making the point and doing so probably very insufficiently, but making the point that Jesus, Jesus is not setting aside the use of the law. He's not saying that the law is useless but he's describing the state of the heart that the law, as revealed by God in Scripture, exposes. One other point of clarification. When we're talking about external restrictions and the way we live as Christians, the choices that we make, the lifestyle choices, what Jesus is saying here is not even dismissing the need for discernment in matters of Christian liberty. Right there, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, look, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Right There are choices that we make. There are things that we do as believers that are distinct from the world that we do for the glory of God. Don't love the world. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 in verses 15 through 17. So this is not a dismissal for the need for discernment in matters of Christian liberty. We're still called to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider other believers. And, and again, all I'm doing is just pointing out a clarification here that would deserve much more time than we can give to it this evening. But here's what we're doing, and here's what Jesus is doing in this passage. What we're establishing is that no external restrictions will keep you from getting spiritually defiled. And no external restrictions will cleanse you from spiritual defilement. It's a spiritual work that has to be done 
And there's nothing that you can do that will, that will address the wickedness of your heart. There's nothing you can do on the outside that will take away the wickedness, the spiritual wickedness of your heart. Again, Jesus establishes this in verse 19 when he says about the things coming from the outside, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And writing to a Gentile audience, possibly uh, Peter being the, the primary source for Mark's gospel, he then adds, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And Peter learned that lesson, didn't he? When he had the vision in, in Acts chapter 10, and the Lord said, get up and eat. In Christ, all, all of the ceremonial restrictions Everything that pointed to was fulfilled. There's nothing outside of you that can cleanse the spiritual needs inside of you. Now, when we look at verse 17, as Jesus is establishing this principle, his disciples asked him about the parable, and Jesus said, Are you, are you without understanding also? The disciples were having a difficult time grasping what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they, were they, the disciples, were so entangled with ritualistic thinking that they failed to understand the simplicity of the parable. And the warning that we need to take is that it is, it is easy to become so conditioned to thinking in a legalistic, ritualistic, and external way that we miss the evil condition of the heart and the absolute worthlessness of, 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 of ritual rites. We have to reject conscientiously and intentionally reject false attempts for cleansing. Nothing outside of us provides spiritual cleansing. I think I've repeated that a few times. I don't know. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, the third point tonight is repent of your sinfulness. Now, Jesus doesn't say repent in this passage. But remember, remember the summary of his ministry back in chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. He came and he preached the gospel saying, repent and believe the gospel. Right? So when he's preaching and teaching, his, his ministry is calling people to repent and believe the gospel, to believe in him, to believe in the Son of God. We repent of our sinfulness, and we're told Jesus tells us that the source of our sinfulness is our heart. That's why you need to repent of your sinfulness. That's why I need to repent of my sinfulness. The source of sinfulness is your heart. Again, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century preacher from England, writes, we need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. Let me read that last line again. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. Every heart Every heart has within it the beginning of every sin under heaven. The heart is desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful. 
The source of sinfulness is not where I was brought up. It's not the companions that I have. Do some of those things contribute? Maybe, but the greatest source of sinfulness is me. It's my heart. And when we look at the list that Jesus gives to us, we find not only is the source our heart, but the scope of our sinfulness is devastating. (laughs) From within comes sin, and then he gives us a representative list. The scope of our sin in the the breadth, he includes both actions and attitudes. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, these these actions that, that show a defiance against God and attitudes of covetousness and deceit and sensuality and murder and or envy and slander and pride. And there's a devastating depth to our sinfulness as well. The first thing that Jesus says. Out of our heart come evil thoughts. He's not describing fleeting thoughts that just you know flit across our brain and are gone. He's describing willful, sinful thought processes, plans, and schemes. Our heart is a factory of sinful scheming to do our own pleasure, to do our own thing. And then at the end of the list, he says, out of our heart comes foolishness. And foolishness isn't just a a, a naivety. Foolishness, it, it has a moral sense to it. It's a moral senselessness that lacks ethical perception and ignores religious responsibility. It's the character of a fool, one who does not know God and one who does not desire to serve him. So you have these, these intentional thoughts and then this, this moral character of foolishness and then everything in between. And Jesus says, that's within you. That's you. That's you. Can I give you a little personal testimony here? I'm very grateful for the home that the Lord put me in to be brought up. My parents were loving. I don't ever remember a time that we weren't in church. Every time the church doors were open, essentially. And I'm grateful for that. When it was time for me to go to school, they were in an area with really bad schools. And so... They didn't plan on this. They didn't even want to. But my dear mother homeschooled me the first year and ended up doing it all the way through, as well as my four siblings. When I was eight, we moved from Columbus, Ohio, to the west side of Indianapolis and bought a house on 25 acres in the middle of the country. You would still do. My parents still live there. You take a country road and pull off in the driveway and go about a tenth of a mile back through woods. And then it opens up to a house and a large multi-acre yard. And then behind that is hundreds of acres of of cornfield. Woods, pond, creek, cornfield, homeschooled, right? ideal. And again, I'm so grateful for it. Learned so much. Was protected for, from so much. But you really, you really would have a hard time setting up a more protected and isolated environment than being homeschooled on 25 acres. And I'm grateful for it. And we homeschool our kids. But folks, can I tell you something? There was a kid on that 25 acres that became a teenager and eventually grew into a man. And every kind 
of evil was present there. And that kid's name was Nathaniel Pringle. Why? Because evil, evil isn't a thing from the outside. It's from the inside. And J.C. Ryle, again, 100, 150 years ago, said this, It's not enough to keep boys and girls at home and shut out every outward temptation. They carry within them a heart ready for any sin. And until that heart is changed, they are not safe, whatever we do. No bad companion teaches a boy or girl half as much as their own evil hearts will suggest to them unless they are renewed by the Spirit. The beginning of all wickedness is within. Without a change of heart, a boy may be kept at home and yet learn all manner of sin. I I read that and I already had planned to tell you about where I grew up. And then I opened J.C. Ryle's commentary. I said, that was exactly what I was going to say, only he said it better. What's the point? The point is the scope of evil in our hearts is so great that, that you can isolate and all the evil is there. It's a, in you. In the context where, where Ryle was making this, these comments, the context was he was addressing parents and just saying, parents, we, we need to understand, yes, it's good to protect our kids as much as we can. It's good to think about the companions that they have. But parents, you need to spend more time praying for your kids You need to spend more time confronting them with the truth of Scripture about their hearts than trying to set up all kinds of parameters that will protect them because you're not going to protect them from their heart. It's there. And it needs a work of God to change it. And as parents and as one in, in the middle of Many years still of parenting, Lord willing. It's a reminder that we need. The Lord's diagnosis of every person, even our little children whom we love dearly, is that this is the state of their heart. And so when evil happens, when evil comes out, folks, it's not... We want to be surprised, but when we look at what God says, we say, no, this is what He said about the heart. And now we have the opportunity to call to repentance. Now we have the opportunity to call to Christ. Now we have the opportunity to call them to salvation. Let's accept what God says about our heart, about the scope of our sinfulness. And I just try to remember, you know what? My children are my children, and I know what kind of heart I have. And we trace that all the way back to Adam and the guilt that was imputed to us in him. This is our heart. Out of the heart proceed all of these things. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. And we have to grasp this. We have to grasp it by faith. Again, when we read this, you know, our immediate fleshly response is to say, well, I mean, I'm not that bad. Yes, I am. And I need to, by faith, grasp that I am that bad. And, and worse than I even realize when I say that I'm that bad. My heart is a mess. It's a disaster. It's rebellious against God. But until I recognize that, I'm stuck. But when by faith I accept what God says about my heart, that's when I begin to see the sufficiency of my Savior. 
I repent of sinfulness. Repent of your sinfulness by, first of all, recognizing that the source of sinfulness is your heart, that the scope of your sinfulness is devastating, but then also that your Savior is sufficient. Your Savior is sufficient. This passage ends with the defilement. These evil things come from within and they defile a person. But I want you to look back at Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 25 through 27. While you're turning there, you know, I, I actually forgot to finish my story. The Lord brought me to a place of devastation toward the end of college that exposed a root of bitterness in my heart and exposed all kinds of other things in my heart. And, and I was devastated. I was the good kid. The good kid growing up, the good kid at school, just utterly, utterly devastated. And I'll, and I'll never forget uh, that uh, in that state, my sister, my younger, one of my younger sister, the one that's closest to me, we were talking and, and I was telling her how devastated I was. And I don't remember what she said, but it was something along the lines of Christ's sufficiency. And it, it was a, a brand new point of understanding the wonder of salvation in Christ. That despite all that wickedness that God and His mercy had exposed in my heart, it didn't change Christ's love for me. That was unchanging. But the wickedness was there. And God had to expose it and humble me to see that See what was present in my heart. Well, looking at the, at the promise that the Lord gives to us, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's what the Pharisees should have understood. They needed a new heart. They didn't need more hand-washing rituals. They needed a new heart, and Christ had promised to give that to them. And if you go to now Hebrews chapter 10, you could turn to a lot of passages in Hebrews, but let's just go to Hebrews chapter 10. In Ezekiel 36, we saw the promise that the Lord gave for a, for a clean heart. In Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 5. Well, verse 4 sets the context for us a little bit. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Skipping down to verse 14. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where, is the forgive, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we start at Mark 7 and say, this is what your heart looks like. It has all this evil in it. What am I going to do about that evil? Well, it's not going to go away by washing hands. It's not going to go away by not eating shrimp and pork. It's not going to go away by offering animal sacrifices. It only is taken away through the blood of Jesus Christ, the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And not only are my sins forgiven, not only is there cleansing and forgiveness of all my sin, but there is given to me, imputed to me, Instead of and in place of the guilt of Adam, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that guilty, sinful, ugly, nasty, gross, disgusting heart that I used to just try to spray some kind of spiritual Febreze over to take away the horrible scent, it's now cleansed in Christ. The sacrifice is made. It's complete. It's done. And although I'm still being sanctified and, and learning to become more and more like Christ, the sacrifice is done. The price is paid. The righteousness is accomplished. It's all in Christ and none in me. I've got nothing. Christ has everything. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, look, when you realize this is the state of your heart, when like Paul, you're confronted by the glory of Christ and undone by his holiness and you fall before him undone and he transforms you and he changes you, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in a few verses later, in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now take that, take that verse. He made him to be sin. And then put... Mark chapter 5, verse 22 over that. What's inside of you? Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Coveting. Wickedness. Deceit. Sensuality. Evil. Slander. Pride. Foolishness. And everything that comes out of that, Christ took it all. He took it all in your place. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect. He was undefiled. He was spotless. He knew no sin so that in Him, in Christ, the heart that Jesus describes the heart, the life that Jesus described has been changed now that we might become in Christ the righteousness of God. And so now God views you not according to Mark 7.20. If you're in Christ, He views you according to 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 21. You're a new creature and you've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I would ask you, do you have that righteousness? Or are you trying to generate your own? You'll never generate a righteousness that's accepted by God. Your, your heart is too corrupt. 
you have to take Christ. You have to take all of Christ and you have to take only Christ. You have to take what Christ says about your heart and you have to turn and repent of your sins and trust in him by faith for forgiveness of sins. And when that happens, when in his grace he turns you to himself instantaneously, like the thief on the cross, instantaneously you are transformed, you're forgiven, and you're righteous in the eyes of God. That's how you deal with your filthy heart. Father, thank you for sending our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, to deal with our sins. Oh, Lord, we, we would be lost. We would have nothing. We'd be damned without Christ. But in love, out of your love for us and his love for us, he came, he accomplished our redemption so that we might live eternally with you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and our Savior. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.